Hello, welcome back to another week of That One Blank Friend podcast. I am your host. I was going to say friendly ghost, but I'm not a ghost. I'm a real live person. Um, <laughs> um, your host, me, Sadia Rashid. Uh, welcome back. And if this is your first time checking in on us and hearing about our podcast and seeing what we are all about, welcome. Gosh, how's your week been out there? I voted today and I got a flu shot. And I feel like those two things together pretty much encapsulate 2020. <laughs> and the the two things that are of the utmost importance right now. So I hope you guys are still safe out there and taking care of yourself. And uh, I just read, I was just reading something about coronavirus. Um, the article uh, that I came across, I believe it was on CNN. It made a link between vitamin D deficiency and coronavirus. And it was saying that if you uh, have a vitamin D deficiency, which a lot of people do, that it makes it harder for you to fight coronavirus or is that is what they believe. So I don't know. Look it up yourself. But I mean, it won't hurt you to add that to your vitamin arsenal. Um, I, I feel like right now I'm taking so many vitamins. I just want to stay as healthy as possible and boost my immune system. So I feel like I'm taking, Jesus, like what, 10 vitamins a day? It's hard to keep track. But yeah, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm popping those things daily. So uh, take with that what you will. Vitamin D, get that in your life if you don't have it already. You guys, I'm really, really, really excited about today's show. Number one, I'm excited because I know nothing about journalism. And uh, I have never had a friend that was a journalist or in that world um, as an editor or any facet of it. So I'm very interested to know more about that. And number two, I get to talk with one of my husband's best friends in the whole entire world. So I, I grabbed this opportunity to talk to Kamau because, um, you know, he's I don't know him very well, but if he's my husband's family, then he's my family. He's my friend. So um, I'm super excited to talk about Kamau and introduce him to you guys. Kamau High is a senior features editor at the Baltimore Sun. Um, and he is also, drumroll, he is a Pulitzer Prize winner. <laughs> yes, he and his entire team at the Baltimore Sun, they were all Pulitzer Prize winners uh, this year for local reporting for a story that they did um, about the mayor. It, well, it started with the mayor of um, Baltimore, who is now resigned and disgraced. And uh, her name is Catherine Pugh. And she wrote these really interesting children's books um, called Healthy Holly. And well, they, uh, you know, some journalists, they did their thing. They were like, oh, this doesn't seem right. And they took a look into it and it spread like wildfire. And it had a lot, a lot of 
tentacles, I would say, the story. So it's really interesting. And um, so I'm excited today to talk to Kamau Hai, not only about that story, but what it feels like to be a Pulitzer Prize winner and also his journey of, you know, as a child wanting to be a journalist and that journey of how it happens and the hard work behind that. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited. You guys, can you, did you... Did you tell I'm excited? I think I've said that like 10 times. Um, anyway, without further ado, come out. Oh. <laughs> so, okay. So enough about that memory length. Yes. Um, due to recent events of mm. you being with the Baltimore Sun and you guys, Baltimore Sun, including yourself, winning a Pulitzer Prize for local reporting. Yes, I'm very, uh, very excited. Yes, congratulations, <laughs> first off. Thank you, thank you. And it's, fu- and it's funny, speaking of a small but significant role, but like that is exactly what I feel the role I played in the Sun winning the Pulitzer. Um, I, I, the, the story that one or the series of stories that won us the Pulitzer are, were essentially about our mayor at the time, Catherine Pugh. And, and it's, it turned out that she had written a uh, poorly edited um, and terribly drawn children's book that she was then selling to uh, essentially university systems and parts of the city, say, including the school system, um, and then not delivering the books. So the eventually the federal authorities decided to call it stealing um, and tax fraud and all sorts of fun and exciting terms. And she eventually resigned in disgrace. And so while I was, I, I edited some of the stories that sort of like led to that entire moment in history. The reporter who sort of kicked it all off, his name is Luke Broadwater. And uh, soon after he won the Pulitzer, he uh, ran away and joined the circus, uh, i.e. he joined the New York Times. Uh, so we say congratulations to him. But yes, <laughs> I, I think of sort of winning the Pulitzer Prize as the, even though like, you know, it wasn't my stuff specifically, but like I was part of it. Like now when they write an obituary, it'll be like, come out behind, comma, Pulitzer Prize winner, comma. And that makes me very happy. Yeah. Uh, I enjoy it. I, I, think, I, I think I enjoy it a little more than everybody else because I'm just like, dude. We just want a Pulitzer. That's amazing. <laughs> so I want to get into this story, but first I want to really get into you because I still Let's get into it. don't know a lot about you. Okay. okay. So you're a journalist um, at the Baltimore yes. Sun. You specifically report on arts and entertainment. No, I'm the, I'm the features editor. So I, I am... I'm no longer, I mean, occasionally I write things, but usually if I'm writing something, things have gone terribly wrong. You know, I'm more, I'm more sort of overseeing our arts and entertainment coverage. So I'm the guy who the reporters come to me and say like, I want to write about this thing. And I say, yes, no, maybe. Or this, then I go to the reporters and say, I really think we should write about this thing. And they go, yes, no. Sometimes they say maybe, but generally they say like, yes, we totally should write about that sort of thing. Okay. All right. See, I don't know anything about journalism and the different levels and how a staff works. So you're going to feel me and the audience in on all of that. So from the very beginning, mm-hmm. little Kamau grew up in, where did she grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, my parents divorced when I was young. And so, and I split my summers between, so I, I spent 
the school years in Philadelphia and then the summers in Lafayette, Louisiana. Uh, the Philadelphia with my mother, Louisiana with my father. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's a drastic difference. That's interesting because I don't come across a lot of specifically Black people nowadays. And this is this is going to be a weird reference for people who aren't Black. But like, there was a time where a lot of, I would say, people in my family and extended relatives, that if you lived in the North, you spent your summers down South with the relatives. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is, I, I still find it weird. Uh, and, you know, while now I live in Maryland, which is below the Mason-Dixon line, so it is the South. Uh, it is not the same kind of South as Louisiana, specifically Lafayette, Louisiana. You know, I can still throw in a country grammar, you know, ism every now and again. Um, but to me, the South is this mysterious, swampy land full of, like, Confederate flags and like black leaders at a church, <laughs> and, and I know it is a more complicated picture than that. But that, like that, that's the image I had from my childhood. And how did you, how did you adjust to those? How long did you do that, rather? I spent my summer up until so probably from when I was about six, maybe seven, until maybe thirteen or fourteen. Um, and then, fun fact, because this is the era where you could still smoke on planes and people barely wore, wore seatbelts, I would fly by myself um, at the age of six or seven. Um, and it was perfectly reasonable. No one thought it was weird. It was just like, of course, we're going to put a child on an airplane by himself. Like, what could go wrong? Right. <laughs> yeah, one of my first memories being on a plane was, I think I was about that age, maybe about six. And I remember they served blueberry pancakes on the plane. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, I remember people smoking and I remember blueberry pancakes and them being very good and thinking, wow, this is how you travel. And yeah. now growing up and getting like peanuts, maybe it's like, maybe. Oh. <laughs> it's so sad. It's like, wah, wah, wah. and so you stop that around 13. Yes. Um, so that's, I mean, spending your summers there. What did you do when you were there? In the summer, well, uh, so both my, my father and my stepmother worked, um, so they would often, when I was younger, drop me at the local library. And again, you know, this is an era where you could just leave children places, and no one thought it was strange. The while I was already a big reader, uh, having eight to ten hours to myself to like read whatever I wanted was a formative experience and one that I also look back fondly on. So I spent a lot of time reading, a lot of time writing um, sort of stories and letters to my friends. I also would make uh, little miniature skateboards uh, out of um, sandpaper and hot wheel car uh, wheels. Uh, and then I put my own little designs on them. Uh, and then, you know, uh, skateboard with my fingers. Oh, uh, for people cool. who can't see the can see the video, I'm making the little like my two fingers on a skateboard image. <laughs> and when I got older, um, I would uh, my father put me in a camp called um, Manhood Development Camp, which was for African American uh, youth. And my father uh, was also a he volunteered as a counselor for it. And so it was out in the middle of the woods, um, and they had little cat they had cabins, and so we would spend maybe three or four weeks in, you know, deep in the woods with other black youth um, and counselors doing camp type things and developing our manhood, which at the time I was like, this is corny. Like, I don't need my manhood developed. What do I look like here? 
So between camp and being babysat by the public library. Yes. <laughs> That's how you spend your summers. I, my parents actually did that a couple of times to us as well growing up. The local library was totally like, oh, we don't have anybody to watch you this summer. We're just going to drop you off and pick you up at 3 p.m. Yeah, I mean, to me, the library, I mean, it was, in a sense, it was genius. And I often wonder if, he, if they actually sort of thought that through because what I found is that I, at first, you know, I started with my the age appropriate books, but you quickly finished those. And then I realized that I could read the age inappropriate books uh, because I was like, I went to the librarian and said, lady, can I have, can I have an adult library card? Um, and that was my impersonation of how I sounded at the age of eight. Um, <laughs> And they were like, if you can get a parent signature, and of course I got the parent signature. And so, you know, I was reading, you know, Stephen King, uh, Judy Bloom, um, all sorts of provocative titles uh, at a young age. And it was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so you quickly advanced to more of the adult books. Yes. At that point, what was your favorite series of books to read? Like, did you have a particular author that you really gravitated towards or particular types of uh, genres of books? I, you know, the, my first sort of like author who I read, I mean, as you know, sort of the adult books that I read, all pretty much everything they wrote was Stephen King. Um, and I, I think I started with Cujo. It might have been Carrie. Uh, it was one of those. And I was terrified, uh, but also gobbled it down in, in a very short period of time. And I said, man, I need some more of this stuff. <laughs> Wait a minute. At this point, how old were you? Nine, maybe ten. Oh, my goodness. What I loved so much about it was that while I was scared, the, the, the sentence structure was just so compelling and just so easily, they were page turners. I mean, there's a reason he sells millions of books. Um, but as a young, as a young budding writer, I remember thinking like, wow, if I could do that, that would be amazing. So, okay, you're reading these Stephen King books and you're falling in love with how he is composing language. At what point is the seed kind of planted that, ooh, I think I want to be a writer. Like, I think that's my avenue. Well, that was slightly earlier. That was probably about third grade when I read the seminal book, Harriet the Spy, oh, okay. uh, which is about a little girl uh, who, who keeps notes on all of her classmates and she spies on them. Um, and eventually her notebook gets found and there's drama. Um, but I remember <laughs> thinking, I want, I want a notebook full of secrets. That would be cool. And, and that sort of led me to journalism um, because journalism is nothing if not we know secrets that other people don't and sometimes we write them down uh, sometimes we can't for various legal reasons uh, write them down but we still know them uh, which is actually the best kind of secret to know because then you can tell people at the bar <laughs> so then like with the harriet the spy books mm -hmm. it was which is funny. I feel like we've talked about notebooks so much before we even got to Harriet the, the Spy about her particular notebook. And I remember reading those books. They're great. <laughs> but with the notebook, was it also the idea of observation? 
Yes, it was it was observation, it was secret knowledge, it was it was writing it down, it was like having a a totem that no one else had. Mm-hmm. Um and, and that was that was what I wanted. Gotcha. Um and I, I still use physical notebooks, even though I'm no longer a reporter, I still just sort of take notes or like I'm doing my to-do list, that's what I use because it when I help, when I hold a reporter's notebook in my hand, that is a feeling of like ah. I'm about to make some news here. And, uh, <laughs> Do you keep the pencil tucked behind your ear? Yes, and I've got a fedora with a little press card. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I'm probably drinking in the morning, and there's a manual typewriter somewhere. Uh, and then there's an editor yelling at me on the phone, like, "Hi, we need that copy stat." I mean, he wouldn't say stat, but you know, ASAP. <laughs> and that's actually why i went into journalism because i wanted that i wanted i wanted the newsroom experience gotcha and then eventually when i got it it was exactly what i thought it would be although there was way less smoking inside (laughs) okay so you you're reading harriet the spy you you eventually evolve into uh reading stephen king in high school did you actually start writing? Like, did you join? Did you have a newspaper? Well, so we had a we, we had a school newspaper, um, but in my precocious mind, I was like, that's lame. We should start our own. Um, so I started my own underground newspaper, uh, which was called The Purple Cow. Uh, and I was editor-in-chief, and all of my, my little group of friends were all sort of tasked with writing various stories. Now, these were not news stories. These were more like... I remember one of them being like, this is why, you know, disco should die. Because this is the sort of thing that we were obsessed with back in those days. Because I think disco was making a resurgence, even though it had long since been killed off. Um, There was artwork, poetry, cartoons, uh, random articles, and and sort of random editorials. And the, the part that always amused me is that I would get it photocopied at my friend who his father had access to a, a large business photocopy machine. So we would we would go to his, I think it was in his office, and, and then like literally make, I don't know, a hundred copies of it and then hand it out like it was drugs in the school hallway. We were, we were trying to get some buzz, going for an independent media venture. So did you? Did you get some buzz? Oh, yes. Well, because the, we, one, we had curse words uh, because every, as everyone in high school knows, cursing is cool. I mean, obviously. I mean, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> so we had that, and then uh, we were also popular kids. So everybody wanted to see what we were doing. We did, I think we did maybe four issues over the course of the high school my high school years. And yeah, it was it was fantastic. And that that experience, sort of like running my own publication, uh, such as it were, was really sort of cemented in me that this is what I want to do. Well, I, I like the fact that you, instead of kind of falling in line with the school newspaper, your first thought was like, no, I'm just going to do my own thing. And what's so interesting is that when you said earlier that you liked the idea of the newsroom, I feel like mm-hmm. this was kind of, like you said, your first kind of way of recreating it for yourself, almost like I'm going to simulate how this entire thing feels centered around me and then i'm gonna see if it works or not if i'm really into it (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, no, but, I mean you're totally right. I, like the it's it's sort of like I was I was making a play newsroom um, and sort of being like, well, this is what I imagine newsrooms are like. Even though the newsroom was like we'd sit at my locker um, and you know sort of draw, like try and hide curse words in like the cartoons, but you know it was fun. <laughs> You guys being so slick, hiding curse words. I, I know. We thought we were such badasses. <laughs> so you did the Purple Cow for all those four years. And then when you graduated from high school, how hmm. did you decide where you wanted to go in your major? And how did you decide you at that point, like, what did you envision your path to journalism being? Well, I knew I wanted to be a, I knew I wanted to go to journalism school. Um, and I, I was like, okay, if I'm going to go to journalism school, I don't need to study journalism undergrad. I need to study, I need to be, I need to know politics and history. So I majored in politics and history. Um, and at the time I thought I wanted to be a political reporter because I, I had read the book, uh, The Boys on the Bus, which is about um, the political coverage of the, I believe, 68th election where all the reporters actually ride in a bus with the candidate. And it sort of gives you this portrait of, A, they're all a bunch of white dudes, uh, and B, they're all smoking on the bus. And then C, they're all, you know, it's all this internecine drama of journalism that nobody except people who work in the business would care about. And I was like, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to care about these PKU things. These, are, these things seem important. So I decided to, I went to NYU undergraduate with your husband, now husband. And I picked NYU because when we went on a school visit, we walked through Washington Square Park, which is the main park, which is right, which is part of NYU's campus. It's not part of the campus, but it's right next to it. And when walking through it, I said, these are my people. This is, this is the feeling that I want. And if you've ever been to Washington Square Park, you know, you know it is full of artists, entertainers, homeless people, some sort of scam, uh, quite a few scam artists, maybe people selling drugs. Maybe, maybe it's not drugs, who knows? Um, so it is full of danger, excitement, thrills, chills, um, and just general weirdness. And I was like, this is where I wanna go to school. Like, you know, let's, let's stop looking. Um, and so I went there and it, as it turned out, NYU was exactly like that. Uh, <laughs> it was full of weirdness, people maybe selling drugs, danger, uh, artists, entertainers, and thrills and chills. It was a, it was a good time. That, you, that's so funny. That's exactly how um, Brett described it when he decided <laughs> he wanted to go there. I believe he actually used Washington Square Park when we were talking about it as the same example that he was there and he was like, this is like, this is where I want to be. Which yes. is so funny because um, <laughs> New NYU was actually my dream school at that time. I was dying to go to NYU for the dance department. I would have dance department or NYU money. Got accepted, but I, I, I like I, my parents are like, yeah, we scholar no scholarship. Yeah, you're not, you're not going. <laughs> but yeah, no, I feel that because I feel like as a young adult, going to New York and seeing that, and then having the idea of in your mind what journalism is, it is all those things. It's a mixture of like Harriet the Spy. It's a mixture of this excitement with, uh, uh, you know, creative energy with a little shadiness. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's all of that mixed in. 
So you see that and you're like, I'm sold. I'm here at NYU. Yes. As you said, it turns out NYU was exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it really is. I mean, I mean they, that should actually be their marketing. Uh, you want danger? You want excitement? You, you, want, you want creativity? Come here. <laughs> <laughs> so four years at NYU. Uh, and, I, and while there, I, um, because I was, you know, I was, I was like, I'm going to be a political science reporter when I get out. I'm going to, you know, write for the New York Times. Um, I did an internship with then Senator Moynihan, who's now deceased. And I, I was, you know, so I was in an, an intern on Capitol Hill and I was like, okay, I'm going to make my political connections. And when I come out, I'm going to be able to like, you know, write my ticket. And the, the minute I showed up and started interacting with the other political interns, I realized that I hate people in politics. Like, they're <laughs> terrible garbage human beings. What in particular, I mean, besides them being garbage human beings, what in particular, when you were in that environment, turned you off? It's the, it's the feeling that they are always looking over your shoulder for the, somebody more important, one, and two, that they are already collecting and trading favors for when they would eventually either run for office. Like, you know, we would have conversations, I'd have conversations with some people and they'd be like, yeah, you know, when I go back to, I don't know, say Kansas, you know, I'm going to run for, you know, representative. Uh, and I'm thinking about, you know, who I should have on my campaign. And I was like, what? Like, this is, this is all far too grubby uh, for my delicate sensibilities. Uh, so, uh, so there I was with the, with the thought of, oh, no, I've wanted to be a political reporter. And now I hate people in politics, so I can't. And so I finished that internship, you know, and finished my year at my, my senior year at NYU. And I knew that I wanted to go to journalism school. So I applied to the two best schools, uh, Columbia uh, School of Journalism and then uh, Medill School of Journalism. And I was like, okay, you know, we're sort of, you know, because I always figured, you know, you go number one, you go number two. You know, otherwise, you know, what are we doing here? Um, and so I got into both and I was like, well, I already love New York, so let's stay in New York. And keep doing that, because uh, then I don't have to go to Chicago, because who knows what Chicago is like. They may not have enough danger and excitement. It may not just be enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think that uh, Chicago could have, uh, you know, given you a little run for your money. But I, I, see, yes. I see, you know, <laughs> why not stay where you are? <laughs> yeah, I, I had I had not uh, I had not had my fill of New York. I had not in, I had not sucked the juice out of the orange yet. I, I knew that there was much more juice to gotcha. be had. So I, because I've never been to graduate school, so I always imagine it no matter what it is. I imagine that you're, you know, cruising along in undergrad, you find your footing and because mm-hmm. graduate school is typically two, maybe three years, you enter grad school and it's like, oh shit, I'm on a whole <laughs> different level. I gotta <laughs> step up my game. Did you have that feeling? Definitely. And the thing about Columbia is that it's a nine month program. Um, it costs full price um, and they are not cheap. Um, but they, the, the reason that you go to a place like Columbia is so that you can skip between five and 10 years of working in South Dakota at the local newspaper. Um, and so the experience of being there is they treat everyone like a, like a real reporter. Um, and, you know, everyone gets a beat and there is just a lot of we love journalism and so you learn about the history and the sort of the the many many 
aspects of journalism of, you know, sort of good, bad, indifferent, and you sort of immerse yourself in a culture that I'm still chasing that high of sort of like being around people who love the business as much as I do. And while many people that, I work, that I've worked with over my career love the business, there's something about being in a building full of people who are deeply, passionately in love with um, your art form. Um, there's nothing quite like it. So by the time you started Columbia, did you have an idea of what your focus was going to be? Or was it kind of like, let me just see what I'm drawn to? Yes, it was. It was like let me sample the other the other, the other uh, options on the table. Is it magazine writing? Is it arts and entertainment? Is it business? Um, is it sort of city hall uh, uncovering the truth? That so I, I did all all of those things, and ultimately I decided like oh I think I really want to be a magazine uh, writer. And then when I got out of J school, I realized what a lot of people realized is that. There are like five magazine writers in America. Uh, like all those jobs are taken. Really? Uh, that few? Not, I mean, there's not five, but there are. I, mean, like, I know, but like that—that that surprises me, knowing how many magazines there are. Yeah, but the sort of getting onto a a, a well, there are a lot of magazines, but getting onto a magazine that pays you more than a living wage ah. um, and lets you be, you know, sort of right as opposed to you know, many of the other aspects of journalism, you know, from the website to like copy editing, to researching, to being like the editor, um, the actual number of jobs of like, I just write full time for this magazine. There are very few of those jobs, uh, even less now that the business is uh, not in an ideal position. But even back then in the mid nineties, they were they were rare as hen's teeth, those kind of jobs. You so, know, it's, it's really a disservice I feel like a lot of schools do this. I experienced this with undergrad, with being a dance major and then going out into the world and being sort of unprepared for how the job market worked. Yes. Uh, (laughs) It's like, oh yeah, there's tons of like modern dance companies, but they don't pay a lot for me to like live full time as a dancer. Um, So I, I, I feel like it's so interesting to hear that you pay all this money to go to this top journalism school and then you graduate and you realize that they haven't really put into perspective for their students that, oh, hey, by the way, you can be a magazine person, but the statistics around that job are very <laughs> slim. This is how you can prepare yourself to compete in that particular market because your chances are very narrow of succeeding. Yes. And so when I was at Columbia, I actually had, I actually had a part-time job working for, weirdly enough, Money Magazine. But what I was doing was I was doing HTML coding for them. Um, I was like putting together the, for their, I think their newsletter and like they they had a daily thing that went out. And so I was doing it because, you know, I needed money. It is, it is journalism, but it was not in, in any abstract sense of like, and then I got to like write something. They were just like, thank you for writing this code for us. Here's a check. And I'd be like, yes, I got a check for journalism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so when I got out of J School, that was, I actually then transitioned to that job full time and then did not write anything because they were like, you, you know, you do a good job making our website thing, thing work. Uh, thank you. Here's a, you know, here's a check. I, one year out, I was like, well, 
you know, I didn't really go to journalism school to build your website. That seems counterproductive. So, so my, my big idea was, I, I was like, okay, I'm gonna find a job uh, doing full-time writing. And I wound up getting a position or being offered a position at the Poughkeepsie newspaper, um, whose name escapes me, but it's like the big paper in Poughkeepsie. And so I went to my boss and I was like, okay, uh, you know, thank you for uh, you know my time here. I'm going to go off and be a full-time journalist who writes at the Poughkeepsie paper. And he looked at me and he said, "You can't go there. That'll make me look bad." Uh, <laughs> 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 and I was like, "I don't really think I'm worried about you, but okay, keep talking." <laughs> and he said, "How about how about this kid? Um, you can write for this very tiny uh, publication that that actually is." sponsored by American Express that is unavailable on newsstands and only goes to people who subscribe to American Express. But um, you can do that. You can write that a little bit if you keep doing the website stuff. And I said, sold. <laughs> <laughs> did you get paid more money at least? No, of course not. I, I, but I, I, did get, I did get bylines. Uh, and I was like, I will, I, I will take, take bylines uh, because, you know, one year out of J school, I was like, that's something. You know, I'm a web, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to be the website guy for the rest of my life. Uh, as it turned out, being the website guy saved me much turmoil as the journalism business sort of collapsed onto itself and digital became less, look at those weirdos who we pay too much money to, to like, oh, we're all now digital weirdos. So after Money, you're still at Money Magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And then where did you move on to at that point? So I was at Money for about six years. And so what I did, so I went from writing little blurbs with my name to writing slightly longer blurbs to uh, I I wrote about small business for a magazine they they had called uh, Your Company. And so, and then I briefly wrote for Time.com, not Time Magazine, Time.com before going back to Money. And then when I left money, my next move was to the Financial Times. I had a friend that, who worked there who actually I went to high school with, and they sort of essentially you know, got me a meeting with the person I needed to meet with. Um, and then the person I met with, this is how a lot, I feel like a lot of journalism jobs happen. They asked me something random about international affairs because the Financial Times is focused on international affairs. And it was something that I happened to have been reading about because it was weird and interesting. It was about um, Falun Gong, the uh, the group in China that the government considers to be terrorists, but they consider themselves to be you know religious dissidents. Um, and so we got into a discussion about that, and essentially they were like, "Yes, you're hired. You, you, I can have a conversation with you at a, at a cocktail party." Um, so that's that's. Let's do this. So at this point, it seems it's it appears by your mm-hmm. resume that you are sort mm-hmm. of leaning into finance journalism with a tad bit of politics. No, because what they what they hired me for at the despite the name, the Financial Times, that they actually hired me to be an arts and entertainment editor. Oh, okay. So so much like the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times is a is a strong. Um, arts and entertainment section. It's just not. It's just not known for it. Um, people think of other things when they think of the Financial Times. And so I was. I was hired to be uh, essentially like a, you know uh, an assistant editor for their art section. Into also so I would edit and write and do some website stuff. 
because that is the that is the through line of my career of like he knows how to do some internet stuff. Okay, you can, the other stuff, sure, whatever. Let him write a little something, or like you know, let him edit a little something. But can you do the internet stuff? That's the stuff that matters. Well, it seems like all that stuff you learned from that money job is still <laughs> yes. serving you. <laughs> It's, it's, yes, it's, um, I have a, I have a love hate relationship with the technology, but yes, it, it, it has put food on the table. Um, <laughs> and for that, I am grateful. And then from the financial times, you moved on to the wall street journal. No, the wall street. So after the financial times, I went to Adweek magazine, which is a, ma- which, which still is a magazine, uh, dedicated to covering the advertising industry. And my thinking at the time was that, well, advertising is a weird and creative and strange business. Um, I bet there's a lot of weird stories to tell. As it turns out, <laughs> it, it is weirdly buttoned up um, to a level that I just could not even imagine at the time. You would think that the advertising people would be sort of wild creatives, but no, they are Mm. (laughs) They're less less creative than I thought. Let's put it that way. Gotcha. No, I I can see that because looking at it from an actor perspective, when I do commercials, Mm -hmm. a lot of the times it's in the room when you have your, you have the initial audition and then you have a callback. So like at the callback, it's the advertising people and then it's Mm. people from the actual company and then you have the director and maybe some of the producers of the actual commercial spot in the room. And for the most part, the advertising people are definitely the least creative. Um, yes. <laughs> and sometimes you can tell it from the copy of the commercial before you even go in the room. But yeah, I would just say, yeah, there there is this idea that they're just like wildly quirky and weird and and it's very, like you said, it's very more, um, much more businessy than people yes. think it is. Yeah. Well, I so I knew that I was in trouble on maybe my second or third day. I received a call from some from someone on the advertising side, like you know, one of the creatives, um, the people who make the ads, and he said, "Hey, we just made a new film, and I want you to check it out." And I said, "You made a film? That's awesome! What theater is it in?" And he went, oh, no, it's a, you know, it's a 30 second spot. And I, and I, and at the time I remember thinking, that's not a film. You can't do that. You can't call that a film. How dare you? How dare you, sir? And that was when I knew that I had made a horrible mistake. (laughs) No, I'm absolutely in agreement with you on that. It's like, it's, it is, it's, it's art. It's an art based on at the end of the day, selling a product. Yes, commerce. Yeah, it's commerce. So at the end of the day, it sort of diminishes the art that's involved unless the people involved are extremely artistic. Yes, and they, but they all think that they are the extremely artistic ones. Yeah, and it's but like they're wrong. <laughs> no, <laughs> not <they're> you. Wrong. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so I was I was at Admin for maybe about a year, and then I moved within the company. At the time, they also owned Billboard magazine, and I am a huge uh, I'm a fan of music, and so I, the opportunity came up to what to be the branding columnist. Um, so I was like, aha. You know, I've got the advertising background. I can finally, I will finally fulfill my dream of being a full-time writer and I'll be a columnist. This is sweet. 
here we go. And I get to write about music. Yeah. And so I, you know, I got the job and it was fantastic. I got to interview some amazing people. And then nine months in, there were layoffs and I got laid off. Oh. And so there I was going like, but <laughs> this was my dream. And, and now I'm stuck with nothing. And it sort of really, it taught me a lot of things. Uh, and while I learned much from being laid off, like primarily that I am not my job, I am not my career, the way I had to learn those lessons was so difficult that, uh, yeah, I would wish it upon no one. Um, like I'm happy to be through the other side and to have that understanding, but uh, getting there was a tumultuous process. Oh, that that's like heartbreak right there. You finally work your way to the job of your dreams and then mm-hmm. it just falls apart. How, just, just, how, how long did you stay unemployed after that? Let's see. So I, so soon thereafter, I, that was when I started uh, freelancing for the Wall Street Journal. Um, and although freelancing uh, does not pay the bills. So it was really, it was really a, a, in a way, it was just a way to sort of keep my name out there. Um, and I did a variety of freelance uh, things, but that time period lasted I'm going to say my daughter was about three when it happened up until actually until we moved to Baltimore. So that would be when she was in second grade. Uh, So it was sort of, what do they call it? Underemployed. I was underemployed. Uh, So you were hustling. You were hustling at that time. Yes. Yeah. So I had the, I had the brands on my resume, on my resume. I just didn't have the the bank in my account, shall we say. Um, So, uh, so during that time, I actually sort of transitioned to being a full-time dad. Um, because thankfully my wife uh, still was working. Uh, and so trying to square that identity with I'm a full-time, <laughs> I'm a big-time journalist in New York City. That was part of the tumultuous process, sort of learning to be like, okay, let us let us put it all in perspective and sort of be like, and the weird thing about being a, a full-time debt, like the full-time caregiver at that time was I would try to meet up with other dads who were because that was around 2008 so that was the great recession so there were a lot of us out there who were underemployed uh or laid off and so when i would when i would try to like make play dates with other dads i often found that they were sort of hostile because they didn't think of themselves as the play date maker they were not uh-huh. they were they just happened to be bringing the kid to school because uh, they had you know they had some extra time shall we say that was not their, that was not who they were. Right. So they were still a little in denial of how their life had changed. Like you said, their identity was still attached to that job. This is not my job. That's other, yes. this is an in-between time between yes. the next job. It's, this is not what's happening right now. Yes. This is not, this is not who I am. Yeah. No, if you want, if you want play dates, you know, you talk, you talk to the wife. I, I, I'm really, I'm really a chauffeur. chauffeur. Uh, I'm the taxi. And as soon as I drop off, that's where I'm, you know, Gonna get some, I'm gonna get some leads on a new job or you know whatever they were gonna do. For you, do you think that having that still having kind of one foot in journalism with freelancing and then also being more present for your daughter, being a stay-at-home dad, do you think that allowed you to grow into this idea of like I'm not just a parent, but I'm also not just my job. Like I can be both. Both can exist 
together. Maybe not right now how the way I want them to, but Mm -hmm. did that kind of help you with that evolution? You know, at the time, no, because I was so focused on I'm going to get back. Like, I, I, you know, I had to essentially give up, not give up. I had to sort of uh, put in perspective the like, while yes, I, one day I will, I will make it back to the big leagues. Right now, like, yes, I'll like, you know, I'll do a piece here or a piece there. But like, pretty much my my focus or my time is okay. I mean, I, I am the play date maker. I am, I am set. You know, I'm dropping the school. Where I'm sort of thinking like I'm working through like, okay, what are we going to do when we're out of school? Uh, what are our what are our weekend plans? Um, you know, do we like what are the shopping needs? Like, okay, like let's what do we need to cook? And you know, that's actually when I started cooking on a more sort of serious level because I'm a pretty good cook. Um, but that is where sort of it began because I had to because my wife was working and it was like, well, I can't ask her to take on that burden if I'm here. So, uh, but yeah, it was it was not an easy transition. It didn't it didn't happen sort of magically it was just sort of like these are the circumstances that i'm in um and while i would prefer them to be drastically different at least let me sort of try to enjoy them not enjoy them i guess sort of yes to enjoy them to lean into it a little bit more yeah to to appreciate this time right uh, and see what i can learn from it so that period of freelancing happened for i'm trying to think in my head three years old to second grade second grade is like what seven yeah, so about maybe about four years, okay. four and a half years, roughly. Um, and so that ended when we moved to Baltimore. And so when we moved here, uh, as it happened, I ran into with my daughter, a, one of my uh, former journalism professors, who is now teaching here at uh, Morgan State University, uh, Professor Ship. Uh, and I just happened to run into her uh, at the Amtrak station. <laughs> she, she actually turned to me. I was behind her in line and did not, and did not realize it was her. Um, she turned to me and said, like, can you help me with my ticket? Because she was having difficulty with the ticket. And I said, sure. And so when I was looking at the ticket, I saw her name. And I was like, wait, are you the professor from Columbia School of Journalism? And she said, yes. And I was like, I was there. I was never in one of your classes, but I, I was at Columbia while we were there. And so we started talking. Um, and she and I said, you know, I'm looking for a job. Do you, you know, can you make any recommendations? Uh, and she pointed me to uh, the Baltimore Sun and to the Afro-American uh, newspaper. I did some freelancing for The Sun and some freelancing for The Afro-American. And then I became managing editor of The Afro. Because when I went to The Afro, I said, you know, yes, uh, you know, I'm happy to write for you, but I'm looking to transition to management at this point. Uh, and they were like, that's nice, kid. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know it's, not, everybody, it's nice to have dreams. But then soon, like after I did, did like one or two pieces, their editor left. And they brought me and they said like, oh, you know, let's bring you in and talk about it. So we negotiated and I said, I want, I want to be the managing editor. Um, and they said, okay, let's, let's work it out. And so we did. Uh, so then I was managing editor. So then I, I, I finally had my newsroom. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I have to say it was, it was pretty awesome. <laughs> um, because the, one of the great things about the Afro is they, they have this rich um, pictorial archive and as managing editor, I got to say, I got to say, like, I would like this picture from like 1925 to hang on my office wall. Uh, and they would have to say, like, okay, oh, wow. we can make that happen. Um, so my office was was full of these historic images uh, of newspaper images that I still think about uh, of like just how awesome they were and how cool it was 
to like be surrounded by journalism history. You know, it was, it was like I was back in Columbia. <laughs> you know, I, I finally recreated that experience. And at that particular job, how many people were that were you managing? Let's see. So we had let's see, uh, DC editor, Baltimore editor. Um, we had I don't know between five five and six freelancers on the Baltimore side, roughly the same amount on the DC side. So ultimately, between twelve and fifteen. Okay. So with the Afro newspaper, you were managing editor for the entire all, newspaper for, okay for the entire newspaper so you yes. got a variety of pitches of a variety of stories brought to you yes so the so the, the, the way the app was set up at the time is that there was a person who was uh, essentially the in charge of baltimore and a person in charge of dc and then i would oversee those people so and occasionally i dealt with the freelancers who would pitch, pitch me individually or like you know the, the editors were let's you know, let's do a project about this thing or what have you. Um, so yeah, so so it was more like I got to uh, sort of oversee the operation um, and sort of like you know more sort of set the direction of the ship as opposed to being like you know yes no maybe. I mean I did I did say yes no maybe plenty of times, but like in theory my job was to be like where is, where should we go as a newspaper. Um, so that we can try and survive these tumultuous times. And where did you want to go as, as a newspaper at that point? What was your vision? I mean, the idea was we make all of our money off of print. The people who subscribe to print are dying rapidly. How can we make some money off the internet? And I will say, like, I and the entire newspaper industry has yet to figure out the answer to that problem. Because while well, yes, you can have you can have people subscribe to your newspaper on the internet. Obviously, they will pay, they want to pay less than when they got a whole newspaper. Because even though it takes effort and time and money to make it on the internet, it doesn't look like it. It looks like it just sort of magically shows up. And sort of figuring out, trying to figure out how to replace ninety percent of your revenue with something that brings in maybe say 20% if you're lucky mm. is a nut that the best minds of our times are trying are still working on. But I, I think that's something that, um, you know, we definitely need to give more thought to in terms of traditional newspapers and journalism, because I feel like what's happening now is that, like you said, it doesn't take that much time to just throw something up on the internet. And I feel like that's part of the reason why things aren't, fact checked as you know that particular part of the internet of that now you know especially in this political climate you can just make an article and make it look factual and mm -hmm. it can get a lot of views and i feel like within your idea of trying to figure out how to convert uh paper subscribers uh into online subscribers and how to make that profitable i think there's also wrapped in that an idea of of how to protect journalism so that that particular type of thing is uplifted and that we can also filter out a little bit more of the nonsense because i feel like the less important traditional journalism and newspapers become it's mm -hmm. now become this rise of like all this mishmash of factual and not factual information kind of right i don't know if you agree with that 
I'm a First Amendment absolutist, so I am all for people saying whatever you want, you know, true, not true. You know, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't publish it, but to me, like the sort of the rise of, like, I, I think a lot about uh, Father Coughlin, uh, who was a, a radio uh, force. Uh, he was essentially a, a preacher who had a huge following in the 1930s, and he was uh, famous for essentially his racial demagoguery and sort of being a, just, just spewing garbage. Um, but he was immensely popular. And it's kind of like, sometimes you just have to admit that a lot of that's, sometimes that's what the audience wants is, you know, Father Coughlin. Um, that is true. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not here to say that if you, if you don't, if you don't, if you want Father Coughlin, you should, you can't, you can't have it. Like have Father Coughlin. <laughs> You know, but I'm not going to be writing. <laughs> yeah, that. I'm not. I'm not joining the Father Coughlin Times. But you know, if if that's what people want, let them have it. I, you know, I, I also think of a lot about where your husband used to work, which was at, at Tower Records. Um, they had a book section, um, and I used to spend unsurprisingly, I spent a lot of time in the book section because what Tower Records book section was known for was it's sort of essentially wild west nature like you can get all sorts of crazy things there um after the oklahoma city bombing i read the book that inspired timothy mcveigh um, which is like this uh the turner diaries which is this white nationalist garbage um but surprisingly well written but the reason i could i could read it and be like what is timothy mcveigh about is because there was a bookstore that was selling white nationalist garbage and if I, if I can buy white nationalist garbage, why can't other people buy white nationalist garbage? You know, as long as we're all grown adults here, so. <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good point. It does go, that, that idea does go into really sacrificing First Amendment rights. And that's something we got to keep in mind because whether we like it or not, you know, it's allowed to be out there. Yeah. I mean, is it is it good to sort of you know read the Father Coughlin Times? I would suggest no, but you know I'm not a licensed physician, so. <laughs> so you're at the the Afro American for mm-hmm. how many years or almost four years? Okay, and then how did you end up at the Baltimore Sun? Well, I got to the Baltimore Sun in that I reached out to uh, an editor there. The Actually, the editor who I, I, I dealt with when I did the freelance work for them, you know, because I, I at the time I had, I had actually sort of gone through a big chunk of the process to join the Sun uh, when, you know, when I first got here. As it turned out, they, uh, for a variety of reasons, they did not uh, hire me. Um, and so and that's when I went to the Afro. And so after, you know, four years, I was like, okay, you know, let's try this again. Let's, let's see if anything has, has changed. And I essentially badgered this ed- editor into a coffee meeting and then razzle dazzled her <laughs> and said like, I would really like to join your newspaper. I think it's pretty cool. Um, they were like, mm, we need to talk to some other people. Uh, and so I talked to some other people and, and then I joined the newspaper. The Sun famously has a, you have to interview with every section, even the sections that you're not going to work at. Oh. So it is an all day uh, process. And now that having gone through it, I sort of see why it, it goes that way. But initially I was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to talk to like the sports team about? I'm not super into sports. 
but you know, you, it, it all it all works out in the end. Is the philosophy around that? Um, because I know there, you know, as far as entertainment, there are a few companies that work similarly where you have to interview with a lot of people who may not be your direct reporters, but now that you work there, do you think the idea was more around being a team player? Yes, and also sort of so they can get a sense of because because of the nature of the business, it is not at all uh, like crazy that I might wind up working with a, a someone on the sports team on a story, uh, or like someone on the business side, or uh, not the business side, someone a business reporter, or like the breaking news uh, team. And so working there, I, I mean, I, now I see that, like, yes, you need all, you need buy-in from all of the departments or most of the departments because they will actually be working with you. You just don't, you don't quite realize it when you're on the other side. Right. When these, when you're trying to join it, you're just like, why would I talk to that team? I have no idea. But now I know. <laughs> but now you know. Yeah. Well, now that, I know. <laughs> well, that leads me to this health holly scandal am i saying it right healthy holly healthy holly scandal yes because reading some of the articles this thing Mm. has a lot of legs (laughs) a lot of tentacles and i feel like this feeds into what you're talking about with the interview like why like you didn't see why would i need to be talking to this other department and just going back to what you said earlier to refresh everyone's memory the healthy holly scandal is a investigation surrounding the former Baltimore mayor, Catherine Pugh. And you said it better at the beginning, but I'm going to try and regurgitate. Sure. Was that she was using these books that she had self-published called Healthy Holly. They were basically used as a front for people to bid on city contracts. All this was kind of Allegedly. (laughs) Uncovered. So people donated money to pay for these books, but Mm. the books were also never used in some places. Mm. um, And never never produced at other times. Yeah. It, it, what fascinates, what's so fascinating about the story is that it has so many legs, that it spans into so many different areas and i think looking from the perspective of winning a pulitzer prize for this i can now really looking up and reading some of the articles i can really understand the depth of investigation that really went into this story so can you tell me from your perspective how because i know you weren't the, the obviously the lead journalist on it but how it kind of spread at the baltimore sun yeah, so one of so one so you know ed, like nearly every editor touched some aspect of this coverage. I mean, you know, you're talking about the resignation of a sitting mayor over federal tax fraud charges, and at the heart of it was a children's book. And so, you know, from the feature side, uh, the two stories that I, that I that sort of stick out in my mind are one the. And this is where it gets interesting. I, I, I still I still have questions, um, but the uh, the current uh, comptroller of Baltimore City and the, and the then mayor of Baltimore City were in business together on a uh, cons- essentially a consignment shop, and as it turned out, it was rarely open, and it raised all sorts of issues. And so one of our reporters 
wrote a story about how you can get a Groupon for this place. It just seems very hard to use it, shall we say. Right. And I read that story, which you contributed to. As an editor, not as a writer. <laughs> as an editor, excuse me, as an editor, contributed <laughs> to the story. But so it's someone else's byline. Is that the correct yes. word? But you yes. contributed as an editor. Yeah, that particular story about the Groupon, and I'll put a link to all of the references in um, the show notes. But yeah, it's just amazing to me how how many questions were raised around this innocent <laughs> children's book about healthy eating. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, in theory, everyone's pro-healthy eating. Um, the other thing that, that always sort of struck me about the book is that it is it clearly did not have a copy editor. Um, and so there are just some some heinous grammatical spelling errors throughout it, uh, which are just painful to read because, you know, you think about, like, if you, you know, Catherine Peter has been convicted and, you know, it is serving prison time. Um, but if you think about it from the perspective of, you know, let's, let's give her the benefit of the doubt that she actually really wanted to help children right. and sort of offer them, here's a book that will entertain you and, you know, surprise, teach you about healthy eating. Um, this was a terrible example of that. Um, it's a terrible book. It's terribly copy edited. Um, it is not at all entertaining. It just is. It's just a, a failure on on multiple levels. So, <laughs> at, because okay, looking up this story, there's probably I didn't count them because I lost count. But there's I would have to say at least seventy stories referencing mm-hmm. this. Um, yes. And how it evolves. It started around March 2019. Mm-hmm. And then I think it escalated pretty fast because I want to say by May 2019, she resigned. Yes. Well, what's funny is the stories keep going. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, the, the stories, is still, there's still fallout. There, are, they, there were huge changes in some of the, um, the, the university system boards. Uh, because it, it turned out that that was how that was one of the places that uh, Catherine Pugh was selling her books to, which were, which was places that she sat on the board, and so that was clearly a conflict of interest. Oh yeah, this, the story just touches so many different things, and it's, it still manages to surprise. Yeah, there are a lot of a lot of twists with this story. I'm wondering. Why do you think this story, besides the fact that it has to deal with a mayor, but mm. why do you think this story was so appealing to your readers? What do you think was the factor that drew everybody in? I think it was the width of scandal. Even at the beginning, it, 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 it looked hinky, and, you know, and it took a while before we got to the resigned, convicted, sent to prison. But even at the beginning, you, you would look at it, you would look at the facts and go, hmm, I have questions. Um, and then those questions begat more questions. Um, and then the answers that people gave to those questions were also sort of like, hmm, hmm, is, is that what you're gonna go with, really? That's your, that's your explanation? Hmm. <laughs> now we have even more questions. Um, because, because as it turns out, they were they were full of lies and <laughs> cover up, which is why they that was why they didn't make any sense. So, being at the Baltimore Sun and this story is breaking, did it 
if this was a movie, if this was like mm. a TV show, like the newsroom, mm-hmm. it would feel, I think someone would write this as like, oh my God, this, you know, like you would see like the terrible copy editing of the book. Like you, you know, like you'd see like someone dropping off the book. The images would be like them collecting dust at the Goodwill, you know, in one shot. And then like the next shot, like, you know, people, you know, pitching you as the editor, like, you know, these ideas or like you you commiserating with, you know, the, the main editor, you know, or like someone bringing all the, you know, you guys all in a meeting together talking about how this thing has legs. We got to go with it in this direction. <laughs> so in my mind, I'm imagining that energy of the room. I want to know, because in the beginning of your career, you were like, I love that, that energy of like being surrounded by people who love it as much as you do and are in it. With this story, because it has, it branches off into so many directions, did you feel like it had that energy? Like, was that energy at the office. Yes, it, like after the first story or two, we knew um, to use a term from uh, the wire that it was a, a red ball express. Uh, we knew that it was it was big. I mean, we did not know it was going to end in resignation and conviction, but we knew that it was like this is this is this is a big one. This there's a lot going on here. And sort of speaking of movie images, the image that always sticks in my mind is. The day that Catherine Pugh resigned, you know, we got we got word that she was going to resign, and we have we have a we call it the Oculus in the newsroom. It's a circle of televisions that um, that are in the that hang from the ceiling uh, around where the editors sit, or most of the editors. And you know, so we get the word that she's about to make a statement that she's resigning. So everyone essentially stops what they're doing, and we all gather around and we're staring at the television. Um, you know, and our breaking news editor is poised to like press the button that says like Catherine Pugh resigns. Um, and you know, we're, you know, everyone's poised with that story. But then just sort of the the, you know, the human curiosity of oh my God, the mayor of Baltimore is about to step down, and you know, sort of a hush fell over the room as they as a, you know as they they're like, okay, it's about to start. And it turned out that her I think her lawyer took the podium gave a one minute statement and departed with no questions. And the, the outrage and the sort of being like, what just happened here? Did she just resign by not in person? What, how did you can't do that? Um, that's sort of the, that, that feeling uh, of sort of witnessing something not only historic, but also incredibly strange. Uh, it was a real WTF kind of moment. Like, that's, that's not how this works, lady. You can't do that. And obviously she did, but it was just sort of like, wow, this is it. This is, this is, this is really happening. That's the, that's the moment that, that I think of as the, the, as the end credits roll. Um, <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's just, it's just, it's just a bunch of girls sort of looking at each other going like, what? Did she really just do that? <laughs> uh, and then just sort of, sh- you know, sort of shaking your head in a resigned manner, being like, "It's it's Baltimore, Jake. It's Baltimore." <laughs> so then that happens, and like you said, this thing took off. Like, what was the phrase? Red Express. Oh, Red Ball Express. Red Ball Express. <laughs> this thing takes off like the Red Ball Express, and then you guys are all sitting a couple months later in front of. Uh, the newsroom TVs and she resigns not in person <laughs> and 
you know, credits roll and that's it. <laughs> How do you go back to the everyday vibe of journalism hitting that kind of like roller coaster and highs and low? Like, let's say the month after that happens, are you guys still like processing that? Like what the fuck happened? Or is it by that time, have you already like gotten back into on to the next story? No, no we, 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 I mean, we, we're still telling jokes about, about it because it was like the man resigned. <laughs> what? Uh, I mean, it is just such a confounding, bizarre moment that like, yes, you know, we still put out a paper every day and the web update the website. And, you know, we still, you know, we still like work on other sections and, you know, put out a fantastic pu- publication that you should subscribe to and print. Um, but yeah, no, it, it still sort of shadows the newsroom. Like we, I mean, now that we're virtual, we don't have it, but for a very long time, we kept actual copies of, of the Healthy Holly book around just to sort of be like, ha, look at that. Can you believe this? So, okay, that dies down. And then a year later, the Baltimore Mm -hmm. Sun gets Mm -hmm. a Pulitzer Prize for local reporting. Were you guys all surprised by that happening? Yes. I mean, the, so, yes, I I was, yes. Um, We, the, traditionally, the newsroom watches the Pulitzers on a TV screen, but because of the pandemic, we were, we were all in a, I think it was it was like a special um, teams team channel or something. So we could view the view the broadcast and sort of talk to each other. And you know, so I personally, you know, I'm 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 watching it, but you know, I'm I'm working on other things and you know, just sort of you know, just doing my job and just sort of like, oh yeah, that, that's nice that the pulitzers are going on. Um, not sort of expecting you know this this to happen. And then when they get to local reporting you know, we, I hear the word Baltimore Sun and, and everyone just kind of goes, wait, what did, what? <laughs> and then there was not chaos breaking, breaking loose because we're all in a chat channel. Um, but there was a lot of like, oh my God, we just won the forward center. Yay. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was a real kind of mo- uh, moment. Um, it was weird because you know, there's a pandemic going on, and and we could, we did not do it in person. But yeah, it was it was a very it was a real kind of like wow, that is like we did it. That's that's it. There you go. Congratulations, <laughs> job well done. <laughs> you know, ching ching. <laughs> now I don't know how it works when you get. I mean, I don't know how it, it works with a Pulitzer period, but. When it's a group, when it's a, a newspaper that gets a Pulitzer, like I'm, I'm trying to imagine it. Like, do you get a statue? Does the, like, does does uh does the newsroom get a statue? Do you guys all get into? Do you get a certificate? How's it? Like, what do you get to carry that with you? I'm, I mean, you know, you want a little besides it being yes. online. You want a little. Here's, you know, yes. your next job. Here's a little proof. I, I contributed to this. Uh, here's my, yeah. my proof of Pulitzer. <laughs> yeah, proof of Give Pulitzer. Give me what yes. to do. Yes. Uh, well, so so the way, and normally what happens is there's a, they hold a big dinner in New York City uh, with lots of speeches. Um, and they give you, they give everyone uh, who was at the paper at the time, you know, a certificate. 
Um, and in the case of the Baltimore Sun, uh, what we also did is um, we essentially printed a, 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 a thin metal version of the front page that says, hey, we want a Pulitzer. Um, that we then distribute to the newsroom, sort of like so. So like, I have not picked mine up because there's a pandemic. But when I do pick it up, and I believe they're mailing us our, our certificates of Pulitzer. Uh, <laughs> like my my plan is to frame the metal the metal version of the front page with the Pulitzer certificate next 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 to it because yeah, of course we put it on the front page that we want a Pulitzer because <laughs> it's awesome. Absolutely. Um, so yes, you, you do you do you do get a certificate of Pulitzer. It is not. I don't think it's. it's I don't think I can carry it in my wallet. But I may make a copy and keep it in my wallet just in case. You should shrink it down, and <laughs> yes. then you should laminate it. Yes. Well, what what I what I do is I, I like to uh, I like to drive my wife and child crazy by saying, as a Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, I would like to ask spaghetti for dinner. <laughs> oh, <come on. laughs> or, you can ask for more than spaghetti as a Pulitzer Prize I, I, I was just trying to give an example. Like, as a Pulitzer Prize winner, I think we should go out for ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they think it's uh, insufferable and cute at the same time. Oh. Well, I mean, they're going to have to deal with it at least for, the. I mean, until the beginning of next year, I feel like you are... No, until the, the day I die. <laughs> Like the time. <laughs> yes, I'm gonna have on my gravestone as a Pulitzer Prize winner. <laughs> well, now that you have won a Pulitzer, mm. um, and you were before you just said, Well, that's it, that's but see, I don't think that's it, at least for you. So, I'm no. wondering well, what for you is your next defining moment. Well, I mean, I've, I think I'm coming up on two years at the Baltimore Sun in October. Um, so I, I see, um, I foresee a long future with lots of exciting projects, some of which I cannot disclose because, you know, they're, they're still in the like, I don't know, <laughs> I still, we still need a few more sign offs on that one. Um, I, I, mean, I see, I, what I foresee is, is more great work. I mean, what I'd love to be here next year going like, and then we want another one. Right? <laughs> <laughs> How cool is that? Yes, I would. Uh, <laughs> yes, I would like to see that. So I mean that's what I that's what I foresee. You know, the the, the business is is going through some changes. And so we will we will see what tomorrow brings. But my my hope is that it is something strong and worth reading. Absolutely. Wherever you consume your news. <laughs> One <laughs> last question. Um, okay. As a journalist, what, if you had to encapsulate mm -hmm. journalism in one sentence, what would that be? Mm, journalism in one sentence. I need to. I need to think about this one. <laughs> <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> uh, I mean, um, it is hard but worth it. And the other thing that I, I come back to is that it's something different every single day. That actually, that is that is something that I find that really makes it all worth it. Um, because it is never, even in the even in the arts and entertainment section, it is never the same story. Um, even providing about the same organization. 
Um, it is it is like, this is the other thing, or we're looking at it from this other angle, or here's something you never thought about. Um, so that is what keeps me coming back because it's because working in the business is kind of like my own personal endless Twitter feed. Um, it is just endless, endless things of interest. Um, and I am just sort of from the day, from the minute I start till I log off, it is just a, a river of interesting things. And I think of my job as to look at the interesting things and go, what is the most interesting thing? Um, and then sort of bringing it out and saying like, let's do, let's do this interesting thing uh, about this interesting thing. Oh, I love that. So Hard, but worth it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, We're going to wrap it up. Now. That, that was it. I, that was a perfect okay. ender. So thank you, Kamal, for really teaching me about journalism and um, really informing, you know, our audience about what it really yeah. takes. And as a Pulitzer Prize winner, yes, you know <laughs> that it's hard but it's worth it's hard out here (laughs) (laughs) it is very hard out here (laughs) thank you so much you guys uh i love when i love hearing other people's journeys and just loving that they have a happy ending and a great conclusion and the fact that you know he fought for the type of career he wanted for so long and now it's here and it was still unexpected but exciting and that he is excited for the next thing um you know i i hope that everyone can have that 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 feeling for the career that's something that i myself am chasing as an artist so uh, i love hearing other people's stories and you know what once this pandemic is over hopefully maybe next year this time i don't know if you are in the dmv area or you are out and you see kamau give him some dap give him a handshake give him you know a fist give him a pat on the back congratulate him forever and ever and ever on this Pulitzer Prize because he is going to receive it every single time, as he just said. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, show him some love. And But you know what? In the meantime, you can show me and this podcast some love. You can head over to Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to uh, That One Blank Friend podcast. You can rate and you can review how, how are you liking this podcast? Let me know. I want to I want to hear from you. Also, you can head over to Spotify. We're there also. Listen to us on that platform and feel free to show some love on social media at that one blank friend on IG, um, at Saudi Rashid on IG or my Twitter. And just let me know, hey, if you love a particular episode, feel free to retweet it. Feel free to share. Feel free to slide into my DMs and let me know what you think. It's all love here. So you guys, I appreciate you for listening. Um, I appreciate you for subscribing. Um, I should appreciate you for sharing and amplifying this platform with me. And uh, one more thing. Gosh, how did I forget? It's getting close. It's two weeks away from my solo show. November 7th. That's a Saturday, 7 p.m. Pacific standard time it is live it is streaming live you can watch it anywhere from your couch from your toilet from your bed 
And uh, if you are up for some live theater to see a short solo performance, um, go ahead and look at my show notes. The information is there, buy a ticket. Hopefully you will be able to enjoy some theater uh, being presented. Theater. I guess I should say it that way. Theater being presented in um, a a new form. So uh, with that being said, you guys, I'm out. Uh, gosh, I feel like I need to take... Did I take my vitamin D today? I don't know. I should. You guys, take your vitamin D. Take it now. Take that. Take your vitamin C. Take your multivitamin. What else? I don't know. Take it all. Just, just take it. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Uh, I think that's it. All right, you guys, I'm out.